Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, really excited to, to share this talk with you. Uh, my name is Mohit Srivastav. I'm a PM for AWS Mobile. And I'll talk about what I do through this talk today. Uh, I'm also with a, a couple folks from Fender who are going to be presenting how they're using our services to build mobile backends. Uh, Josh Couch and Michael Garski from Fender Guitar. Any guitar fans out here? Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, just, just to help me uh, kind of a level set for this talk, how many folks were at the State of the Union this morning, Mobile State of the Union? Okay, actually, a relatively small percentage. Okay, so I'll, I'll, uh, as I talk to the architecture, I'll recap a little bit of the announcements from this morning, just so if you don't have the context, uh, the, the slides make, slides make a, bit more, a bit more sense. All right, so we'll just jump in with a case study. Uh, Bustle.com, their news and entertainment uh, website catered towards women. They had a success, 50 million, 50 million active users every month. You know, tremendous, uh, tremendous success. But as this happened, they encountered a number of problems. Uh, first and foremost, they had trouble scaling. The architecture was monolithic. A lot of modules in a single, single service, which made it hard to individually scale, uh, scale the components. Uh, second, because of everything being tightly coupled, there was a lot of server management, automation, uh, and monitoring challenges. And what's more is agility was hampered because if an engineer had to make a change to just one component, uh, say a newsfeed, it meant, it meant redeploying the entire monolith, the entire, uh, entire backend. Uh, so they took a step back and they re-architected the backend and adopted a serverless approach. Uh, folks, how many folks here have actually dabbled with Lambda? More, more hands there. So they adopted a fully serverless approach, which means that uh, everything is fully managed for you. It means that you only pay when you have usage. You don't pay when you don't have usage. And this is a direct quote from the, the, CTO, the, the CTO of the company. Uh, operations costs were dropped. Uh, it can scale infinitely. You don't pay when you're not using it. And the, the team is about half the size of what he thinks he would have otherwise needed to, to operate operate this kind of service in a traditional way. And you know, one really interesting thing is, you know, as they discovered in the re-architecture, designing for scale actually was the right thing to do from day zero. Like, you know, initially the thought process, oh, if I design for scale prematurely, I'm going to reduce my agility, I'm going to increase my cost. What they found through this re-architecture is if you do design for scale properly, you can actually increase agility at the same time and decrease cost. So you can have your cake and you can eat it too. So in a nutshell, that's what this talk is about. We're going to walk through uh, you know, kind of architectural patterns and best practices and tips and tricks to be able to achieve what bustle.com achieved. Infinite scale, uh, confidence that your application is secure, user data is private, and how to do all of that in a cost-effective cost way. So you can actually do this from day zero when you're building your application as opposed to having to undertake a big re-architecture uh, re later. And uh, yeah, I, str I struggled a little bit with what's the best way, because there's a lot of content and a lot of ways of factoring <laughs> a talk on architecture and best practices for a backend. There's many ways to skin the cat. Uh, and I thought this might be a useful way to do it, is to really think about the layers of a, of a, of a backend, the backend for a mobile application or a backend for a web application. So we'll, we'll kind of go through these sequentially. We'll go through compute, uh, you know, some 
tradition, more traditional architectures, why they work, why they don't work, and what our best practice guidance is. We'll do the same for data, then we'll do the same for user management, uh, same for streaming, and then I'll, I'll take a bit of a break and have uh, Fender Guitar come on and say how they've done the same, you know, how they've used some of those best practices in their application. And then we'll finish with uh, monitoring and global scale. So once your app has hit a certain milestone, how do you really ensure it's globally available, not just in a single region? All right, so let's start with something I still hear from mobile developers on, on, on phone calls today. Uh, phone, recent phone calls actually is, uh, why can't I just deploy a virtual private server or a single instance as the back end for my you know, great new e-commerce application? And my, it'll just be one thing I have to deploy. All the different things I need for my application can be deployed as modules. So in this case, a catalog module, review module, recommendations, orders, and user management. And it's just one thing I have to manage. Isn't that, the, isn't that sort of the optimal way of doing things when it comes to agility? Uh, and there are a couple, couple issues with this approach. Uh, the first thing is when you do need to start scaling, you can't scale things individually. If you, if, if, if you find out that your traffic is such that the recommendation module is where you get all the traffic, you have to still deploy the entire thing and scale the entire thing as a unit, uh, and you're not efficiently using your resources. Uh, next with this approach is you pay for unused capacity. So it's possible the site gets more traffic in the daytime than it does in the nighttime. But with this kind of approach, you pay for, you pay for, idle, you, you pay for idle capacity. If your server is going unused or is at 5% or 10% capacity, you're still paying. A third point is the monolith point. If there's a small bug in the order module, the entire thing has to be re, you know, retested and, and, and redeployed. So even a minor change can become a very high risk, a very high risk proposition. And finally, increasingly, we're, you know, we're seeing our customers say that for different components, maybe different programming languages or different technology stacks make sense. It's much harder to do that in a monolith kind of architecture than where you, 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 you kind of break apart the pieces. So then the next kind of next, next thought process, okay, I, I've heard about this Lambda thing, let me introduce serverless. So as I build net new stuff where I need to re-architect stuff, I'll add serverless to the mix. So I'll, have, you know, I'll keep some of my monolith in place just because I don't want to re-architect that unnecessarily. But for the new stuff, I'll, I'll adopt serverless. And this is perhaps better, but even with this approach, there's issues. You, know, right, you can see right off the bat, there's multiple endpoints now. Each app has to address three endpoints instead of the one endpoint that we saw before. Uh, next, there has to be logic in the client. So now the, the client, if it needs to do something across these three things, has to have a lot of logic to merge the results, make sense of results from three different services. And if you're doing cross-platform, so iOS, Android, web, that code has to be written three times. And then there's a lot of unanswered questions here about authorization, authentication, caching, uh, throttling, et cetera. So this is better, perhaps, but still, still not quite right. So you know, our, our, our guidance for a compute is, is, to, is to adopt this kind of pattern where you have a very deliberately thought through middle tier. Uh, uh, so in our case, that's Amazon API Gateway. And as you adopt microservices, put them behind the thoughtful, a thoughtful API layer. And I think you'll see this pattern in Fender's, uh, Fender's example later, later today. And a, a couple of really nice properties with this architecture. One is it's still fully serverless. So with API Gateway, you don't pay unless you're actually using it. If you're, if you're idle in the evenings, you don't pay. You just pay based on the number of operations. Uh, second, it acts as a facade. 
So your front end is decoupled from the back end. If I need to change the implementation of the review service, or even if, if I need to change some of the contracts in the review service, I can still manage the contract with the client application separately and avoid breaking the client application. Third, which I think is a point that sometimes gets lost, is this can be really helpful for optimizing bandwidth and uh, battery usage. So as I show here, like perhaps the mobile application knows it needs product details. And product details is a subset of the fields that are returned by the catalog service, the review service, and the recommendation service. Some of the fields, but not all the fields. By designing a very mobile optimized API, you return precisely what the app needs. And in doing that, you're using less bandwidth, and in turn, you're using less battery. So this is one big reason, actually, we see mobile developers in particular uh, put this API layer in the middle to be able to be very efficient with uh, their mobile application. And then, because API Gateway has been designed to be this, this, this middle tier between your application and the back end, it addresses a lot of the concerns that might arise, logging, caching, throttling, bursting. Like, how do I, like, like how, I, I, want to, you know, I want to throttle to make sure that my back end doesn't go down, but at the same time, I want to be able to handle a burst. This kind of stuff is just first class and API gateway. And finally, versioning, which allows me, as I deploy new versions of my microservices, new versions of my APIs, to allow old clients to still work gracefully without breaking. Uh, the, other pattern, uh, the other pattern that we uh, see pretty commonly and advise is around event-driven computing wherever possible for your mobile application. So perhaps traditionally, if you wanted to thumbnail an image, the canonical mobile, you know, mobile or web app use case, it would be very synchronous, right? The, the app, the app uh, uploads an image, and then it waits for this, perhaps using long polling or some similar mechanism, it waits for the, it waits for the back end to thumbnail the image, return the thumbnail bits down, and then it returns back to the user. And the problem with this is you can very quickly use up the threads or the I.O. on your web server. So an alternative approach is, event, is to look for opportunities to use event-driven architectures instead. So what, I think I have a, have a laser on this. No, this one doesn't. Okay. So, so what you can see here is you know, the, a number of the AWS services support Lambda triggers. So once I upload an image to S3, I can automatically trigger a Lambda function. Lambda function will thumbnail the image, and then I can use some out-of-band mechanism for notifying the app that a change has happened. So in this case, I'm using silent push via, uh, via pinpoint. Folks use this kind of pattern already? Show of hands. Okay, not too many hands. Okay, so the benefits of this is asynchronous. The client can return right away. Uh, number two is uh, a really important point for mobile apps. Oftentimes, you're using low connectivity or in the coffee shop scenario or the airplane scenario. You just have less, less than ideal connectivity. The nice thing about this is you kick off the thumbnail operation. It will happen even if the mobile app dies. And then when the app, app kind of resumes, it can, uh, it can retrieve the thumbnail. And then finally, there's no persistent compute resource, which I mentioned earlier. You don't have that web server. Uh, you don't have that web server that has to keep an open connection. So to summarize, I've kind of put it in best practices here, and the slides, slides will be available. Uh, adopt serverless as much as reasonably possible. Uh, decouple business logic from your mobile apps. Put as much in the back end as possible, so if you're building cross-platform, iOS, Android, and JavaScript, all your logic is centralized in one place. And then finally, uh, look for opportunities to be event-driven as much as possible. When you're event-driven, you don't have to keep that web server connection open.
So now let's shift with data. Uh, data, there's probably a bit more variance with data, so it really does have to start with the requirements. You know, I'll go into each of these in a bit more detail in a, in a second, but you know, first question is, do I need a NoSQL store or a relational store? And we'll, we'll look at some ways you can decide. Next is what kind of queries? There's a standard, you know, there's a standard queries, uh, look, look, up, look up by a primary key, look up you know, in some kind of ordered way. But increasingly, applications need to look up based on geolocation, for example, full text search. So what exactly are the app requirements? And then finally, when you talk about data in the context of a mobile app, users increasingly expect that data to be available when, the, when there's no network connectivity, so hence offline. They want the data to refresh in real time. Think of dashboards or chat scenarios. And they want to know that the, date, that the app's going to work globally. Uh, when I travel, I want to know my app's going to still work and I'm going to get good performance. So with that, let's start kind of bottom of the stack and work up. So what are, what are some of your data store choices for your mobile backend, and what are the trade-offs? So the first one, first one I have here is DynamoDB, uh, entirely serverless offering, and serverless in the sense that, again, you don't pay for it unless you're actually using it. Uh, it's fully managed, and what fully managed means in this case is uh, there's multi, what's called availability zones. There's multi-availability, uh, 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 sorry, multi-availability zone replication and failover done for you automatically. Uh, you don't have to worry about that in the context of uh, availability zones in the same region. And there's, a, and there's a library for also doing cross regions. So if, if you really want to ensure that even in the event of a failure in a region, your data is available, you can easily set up multi-region replication with DynamoDB. And just last month, finally, uh, they announced uh, a caching service that you can put in front of DynamoDB, again, fully managed, in memory that, that can increase the throughput of your database operations by, by 10x. So a lot of really good properties, high-scale properties of DynamoDB. That said, it's not a relational database. Uh, a lot of us grew up using, myself included, using relational databases, and DynamoDB is not that. And what that means is you can't really do complex relational queries. Uh, you can't do uh, um, joins, complex joins. So to meet that kind of use case, we have Amazon uh, RDS, uh, which, does allow for, which does allow for the complex queries and the complex transactions. It supports many database engines out of the box, uh, the, but it's not fully managed or serverless. So if you want to scale beyond a single instance, uh, there is some work you have to undertake yourself in exchange for compatibility with your preferred database engine. Third, we have uh, Elasticsearch. Uh, folks used Elasticsearch before? Show of hands. So Elasticsearch, increasingly what we see, and you'll see this in Fender's example in a few minutes, is it's, it's used in a complementary fashion with the underlying data store. So if you want your application to be able to do geo, geo searches, so give me all the Starbucks within you know, two miles of my current location, uh, or you want to do full text searches, so imagine when you're typing into a, a search you know, search field, and you get all the autocomplete results. That kind of stuff can be hard with both relational databases as well as NoSQL databases. Uh, so we see a number of our customers pair Elasticsearch with DynamoDB, and there you can use DynamoDB streams to synchronize DynamoDB with Elasticsearch in, in essentially real time. And finally, for file storage, uh, it's, it's, it's really all about S3. Uh, Again, serverless, you pay for, pay for what you use. You know, generally, we see our customers put their binary data, their files, their videos in S3. Metadata, 
you know, metadata, et cetera, in, in, the data, in the database. So with that in mind, what are some, what are some best practices for using, using these data services? So perhaps the first thought would be call the data services directly. We saw earlier why that's not a, you know, in general, calling services directly without an API layer in the middle can be problematic. Uh, same kind of things hold here with a couple new ones. Uh, in particular, the database administrator may not want the front-end developer to access the database directly. Uh, I remember many, I think three, four years ago, seeing a couple websites go down precisely for this region. That uh, queryability was exposed to the front-end developer. Front-end developer found a way to do something that was not sound in the database and uh, took down the website, right? So that's why this pattern oftentimes is not, oftentimes is not, not advisable. So the alternate approach is what we just talked about. You could use REST and put an API in front of it. Uh, benefits of it is it's easy to understand. It's easy to set up. HTTP is a known quantity. Uh, there are some downsides, though, in that it, you know, REST inherently is not a data API. So if you want to enable your front-end developer to, to, to query, for example, and limit the number of fields returned, do paging, do ordering, uh, get notifications when data is updated, REST can, you know, REST can fall down just because it hasn't been designed per se to be, uh, to, to, to be a, data, a data API. So an alternate approach is something called GraphQL, and this is one, we announced the GraphQL service this morning for the folks who were in the State of the Union. And it, it kind of combines the best of both, both patterns that I just showed you. It allows the front-end developer to issue queries, to issue updates, um, and specify exactly what they need in their front-end but there's still a middle tier in the middle. So these queries aren't going directly through to the database. They're getting processed by a, a mid-tier where the administrator can put some rules in place, uh, can put authorization in place to make sure that this, there's still guardrails. So if I'm issuing a get to-dos query, I can't necessarily put a column in here that would completely fry my, uh, fry my, fry my database. A nice thing about this for a mobile developer is I, as a front-end developer, without having to bug my administrator over and over again, can optimize my mobile app. If for my, if a particular view in my UI, I just need three of the five columns that are offered by the API, I can do that here, without having to ask my front-end, without having to ask my back-end developer uh, to author a new API for me. So this is an example of using GraphQL for um, queries, and this is a cool example of using GraphQL for real time. So what you can do here is you can actually subscribe. Let me try using the laser. It works. Okay. I'll have to just, maybe the mouse. Oh, there we go. Okay. So what you see in the red here is I can actually subscribe to updates, in this case, for a blog post. So what this is saying is whenever there's a update, whenever there's a new blog post added, notify me. And what happens is with uh, the SDK that we provide, we notify you transparently. A local cache gets updated, and you can, you can bind that to your UI, and your UI gets updated in, in, in real time. And again, this can just be done in a very declarative way by the front-end developer once the back-end developer has defined the GraphQL schema. So our implementation of GraphQL that we announced today is called AWS, uh, AWS AppSync. It's a service we're really excited about. And here's some of the common use cases that it supports. Uh, first one is real-time collaborative apps. Uh, oftentimes, 
when you have data in a mobile application, the next thing that follows is, well, I want it to update in real time without the user having to refresh. Bag, you know, baggage, baggage tracking, inventory tracking, um, uh, manufacturing pipelines, you want dashboards to just update all the time. You don't want the user to have to, have to refresh. So that's what the first thing is about. Uh, the next one is offline programming first. So mobile apps still today used in environments where, uh, where uh, network connectivity may be less than ideal. Uh, oftentimes, like I know delivery, delivery uh, drivers use tablets that only have Wi-Fi. Uh, they don't have cellular. So there's plenty of cases where apps still need to work with, um, with no connectivity. So we've, we've kind of flipped things on the head here, and the programming model is offline first. So you manipulate simple data objects in your application, and when there is network connectivity, we automatically synchronize it. Uh, and that, that works both for reads and writes. And what that lets you do as a developer is very easily offer a seamless experience to your customers. They feel like they're getting instant access, uh, high performance, even if the underlying network is, is, having, is having problems. So that's what number two is about. Third we just talked about is you can selectively say what you want. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to over-query. So if you need precisely two columns to update a view, you can ask for those two columns. Be very optimal in your use of battery and network. Uh, fourth, we support uh, four backend sources, you'll see, or three backend sources you'll see on the next slide. So you can mix and match if you're pulling data from different places. And finally, we integrate with Cognito for fine-grained access control, and I'll show you how that works in just a minute. So here's, here's how the architecture works. So you can use browsers, you can use uh, mobile devices. We have SDKs for, for JavaScript as well as iOS and Android. I hit a GraphQL endpoint, so there's still a facade in between my app and the data. And my data objects can be backed by one or more data sources. And it actually is at the field level. So you could have a blog post which has some fields coming from Dynamo, other fields coming from Elasticsearch, and other fields perhaps coming from, from Lambda. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really nice for front-end developers in that they get a coherent data model even though individual fields may be serviced uh, from different data sources. And because we support Lambda, you can, you can wire it up to really any data store. You know, our our out-of-the-box support is there for DynamoDB and Elasticsearch, and you can, um, you can wire up your own with Lambda. Uh, one cool thing we also do is we have a, a, a template which will automatically stream DynamoDB updates to Elasticsearch. So this makes it really easy now to expose operations on your data that are like full-text search or geographic queries because we're wiring these two things up. Uh, for you automatically. Okay, I'm going to skip this. So summarize data best practices. If, if your requirements allow, uh, try and go serverless again. You'll see this theme come up. Use NoSQL. Uh, add Elasticsearch where appropriate for complex queries, geolocation, full text search. Uh, add a GraphQL layer between your front-end data to empower your front-end app developers with some of these capabilities. And uh, store your static assets uh, in, in S3, which I didn't talk about too much. Uh, on identity, uh, next, next area that we, we hear a lot of requests for guidance. I think it goes without saying it's important. I think one thing that gets sometimes underappreciated with identity is it's the first relationship you have with the customer. Uh, so we hear a lot that customers want that identity, that first login screen to look nice, to, to load really fast. It's the first relationship that you have with the customer. And historically, 
uh, we saw mobile and web developers rolling their own. So stand up an express node or express backend and just roll your own identity solution. But it's hard, right? It's hard and it's, it's risky. One is security standards and best practices are evolving. It's very hard uh, as an app developer to keep up with all those things. Uh, second, the experience needs to be good. And then third, it obviously has to scale. And for that, we offer uh, Cognito, a fully outsourced identity management solution. So that, that includes uh, authentication as well as authorization and a fully managed user directory. And there's three ways you can add Cognito um, to your application or your mobile or web backend. I'll, I'll focus primarily on this one because I think it's interesting, but all three are, are very relevant. So the, the pattern that we have here is I have a middleware piece like API Gateway or, um, or AppSync. I can use Cognito user pools, which is a fully managed directory in the cloud, and it vends a token. So I, I log in as an end user using Cognito user pools. I get a token back. API Gateway can natively, and, and, uh, and AppSync can natively understand that token. And as a result, I can do very fine-grained access control based on groups um, and users. So if you see what I have on this slide is, is, is an example of just that using AppSync and Cognito. Uh, so this is, a, this is a, a schema for my uh, application data using GraphQL. And we've added this extension here, AWS Auth. So I can say I only want users who fall in these Cognito groups to be able to issue this query. Uh, likewise, for mutations, I can say, hey, I only want admins or bloggers to actually be able to do the mutation. I don't want the read-only group to be able to do it. So really powerful combination uh, using a fully managed uh, identity story. Uh, to summarize, best practice here, if you require user authentication uh, offline, uh, offload it as much as possible. Don't take on that hard problem. And implement access control in the front door that you have between your app and the cloud API gateway or, um, or AppSync. Okay, so with that, I'm going to actually jump ahead and have Fender come on. And they're going to talk about how they've implemented some of these best practices in, in their application. All right, hello everybody. Uh, my name is Joshua Couch. I'm the VP of Engineering for Fender Digital. Uh, Michael Garcia is going to join in a minute. He's the Director of Platform Engineering. He's going to walk us through the architecture for the mobile backend of our Play application. Uh, but first, a couple of words about uh, Fender, who we are, and what we do. Uh, so Fender's been around for a long time. We were founded in 1946 by Leo Fender in Fullerton, California, which is in Southern California, outside of LA. Uh, introduced the iconic uh, solid body electric guitar, the Telecaster, in 1951, and the Stratocaster followed shortly thereafter in 1954. It's a long time ago. Uh, we've grown to 2,000 employees. We've got two corporate offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Hollywood, California. Two factories in Corona, uh, sorry, two factories, one in Corona, California, and one in Ensenada, Mexico. And we also have a num number of other brands in the family, uh, Gretsch Guitars, Jackson Guitars, Charvel, and Eddie Van Halen uh, Guitars and Amps. Uh, Fender Digital has not been around for 70 years. It's only been around for a couple years. We started in late 2015. So Fender had already worked out all their manufacturing and uh, the, the uh, B2C uh, systems, but we wanted to do more with direct-to-customer. 
uh, systems. So that's why Fender Digital was started. And we've got 95 employees, primarily in the Hollywood office, um, and all of our new products that we're building are built on top of Amazon uh, infrastructure and services. Uh, in those two years, we have launched four main products. Uh, the first was a redesign of the Fender.com website. Uh, and the two main features there are what we call Fender Mod Shop, which allows you to build and purchase a customized guitar um, or bass. And then what we call Fender Connect, which is our shared sign-on system. Uh, Fender Connect, we built on kind of a traditional EC2-based microservice uh, with Postgres behind it. So more of your, your traditional architecture. Uh, but then we started to experiment a little bit with Fender Tune and Fender Tone. Uh, so Tune is a, um, a mobile application. It's our first mobile app. We launched that in August of 2016. Uh, initially on iOS, then we introduced Android a few months later. We've had over a million and a half downloads and an average of 4.7 stars uh, for our ratings. Uh, we did a little bit with Lambda there uh, with DynamoDB. You could create custom tunings and save those up to the cloud. Uh, and then with Fender Tone, which is a, a remote control application for our Wi-Fi and Bluetooth-enabled uh, amplifiers, uh, we, we um, allowed you to do a little bit more. You could create presets and uploads to, upload those to the cloud and share those with your friends and with uh, the global population. Uh, so then with Fender Play, we were feeling a lot more confident in the uh, serverless architecture, and we decided to do more with it. We launched that in July of 2017. It's our first React Native application. Uh, and that was only on iOS, and we just launched um, in-app purchasing capabilities a few weeks ago. Uh, we're going to be introducing Android and iPad versions of the app uh, early next year. Uh, so what is Fender Play? Because uh, that's what we're going to talk about in terms of the architecture today. Uh, we've got three main pillars of the Play platform. Uh, the first is high-quality 4K video. So we actually filmed all of the, the content and edited it in our studio, which is uh, right outside of Hollywood. Uh, you can see a, um, a couple of screenshots there. Uh, we use multiple camera angles, but we want to give a very high-quality experience for the user coming in um, and a consistent uh, viewing experience for them. Uh, we also decided to be very beginner-focused. Uh, playing guitar is just inherently difficult. You've got six tightly strong strings made out of metal that you have to press firmly into a piece of wood. It, it hurts. So we want to try to reduce that friction as much as possible and make it as easy as possible to learn how to play that guitar. 90% uh, of people who buy a guitar end up abandoning it within a few months. So how do we help with that? Um, by making our learning product as uh, accessible and beginner-focused as possible. Um, and then a song-based curriculum. Most people, not necessarily everybody, but most people, when they want to learn how to play guitar, is to play songs. Um, so we get you learning songs quickly, and then we teach you skills and theories through learning those songs. So those are kind of the, the pillars of uh, Fender Play. I'm going to show a quick video of the product that demonstrates uh, the site and the mobile app. And we're not getting audio. Anybody? of its kind guitar learning platform from the authority in guitars, Fender. Fender Play is designed to change the way you learn to play guitar. Easy to follow. How many of you have gotten how many of you have gotten how many of you have gotten a guitar, tried to learn, gotten frustrated, thrown it in the closet, and never want to think about it again? I know I have, I know a lot of you have, but there is a better way to learn. What is Fender Play? 
It's a first-of-its-kind guitar learning platform from the authority in guitars, Fender. Fender Play is designed to change the way you learn to play guitar. Easy-to-follow instructor-led video lessons get even brand new players playing chords and riffs in minutes. Ready to play? Start your free 30-day trial at play.fender.com. Online lessons only from Fender. So that's the play application. Uh, Michael's going to come up and walk us through the architecture behind it. I'm Michael Garski, I'm a Director of Platform Engineering at Fender Digital, and I'm gonna go over our architecture that supports our backend for the mobile applications. <clears throat> at Fender, we look at a collection of Lambda functions that operate on a common business domain as a microservice. This provides us a lot of opportunities over a standard REST-based microservice in that it can respond to a variety of inputs. We can be triggered through API Gateway, through an SNS event, through an S3 bucket event, a DynamoDB stream, or even a directly invoked function. This slide represents a pattern that is, we've implemented in many of our services, where we write data to DynamoDB and subsequently read from Elasticsearch. This gives us a solid, persistent, long-term data store, as well as greater flexibility in querying with full text querying, filtering, sorting, and pagination. So in the case of an example, as a user is going through and they're learning to play guitar, we save their progress as they move through a course. So when the mobile application goes to save the progress, the request comes up through API Gateway, hits a custom authorizer that then validates the user's JWT against our auth service, which is EC2-based. If everything works out, the right operation Lambda is invoked and the data is written to DynamoDB. A stream on the table then picks up that data and updates an Elasticsearch index. So the next day, when the user comes back to continue on with their lessons, they open up the app, it requests the current state of where they're at. Again, request comes up through API Gateway, hits the custom authorizer, performs the read, and returns the data back to the user. Right away when we implemented this, we saw immediate cost savings. In a single month, we spend more on one EC2 instance for our auth server than we do for all of our Lambda invocations combined. So it's no surprise that we're gonna be moving that to a serverless architecture this next year. Additionally, we've reduced our cost operationally. We have a wonderful DevOps team, I know some of the guys are here so I can say that, uh, and that have set up deployment pipelines for our functions. Once they've got that set up, there's not a lot else they need to do on the system. There's no security patching that needs to be done, no ongoing maintenance, no worrying about log rotation on servers. Everything just works. Additionally, we don't have any concerns regarding scalability using DynamoDB and Lambda. Lambda will fire up additional container instances as your request grows, and we use DynamoDB auto-scaling to automatically increase provision throughput as load increases. Additionally, when you're using AWS Elasticsearch and Amazon DynamoDB and Lambda, you don't need to put your functions in a VPC. 
that will minimize the cold startup times for when the containers recycle. And when you have your functions in a VPC, when the container is initialized, an elastic network interface is attached to it. ENIs are limited at the account level. So if all of your Lambda functions are connecting to a VPC and you get a major spike in traffic, you can quickly exhaust your account ENIs, leading to invocation errors and just everything going sideways. So unless you have a very specific reason to put your function in a VPC, I suggest that you do not. Additionally, for security with using Amazon Elasticsearch, is that we can control accesses to indexes, types on indexes, and even HTTP verbs used in the requests using IAM roles. So in addition to using typical request response that you'll see through API Gateway, we also have a backend event-driven architecture. We raise system-wide events depending on what's going on. So in the case of an example where a user first subscribes to Fender Play, or changes their subscription status, we'll write that update to a DynamoDB table. A stream will pick up that change, analyze that change, and decide whether or not it needs to raise an event. In the case where an event is raised, there are two functions that pick up that event. One will load that change into our data warehouse for reporting and analytics, and the other will update our email service provider so we can, so we can fix the targeting and make sure they're getting the appropriate messaging. Now, in the case of our email service provider, the event does not contain all of the data we need to send them. We also need to send them the email address, and the event only contains the unique ID. So the function that updates our email service provider makes a direct invocation for a Lambda using that ID to get the email address. That allows you to have secure private APIs that you can restrict who calls them, and they're not exposed publicly over API Gateway. Additionally, we put an SQS queue on every asynchronously invoked function. In the case of an email service provider, uh, sometimes they may have some issues on their end or they're handling errors and requests. I mean, every once in a while it happens, but with retries on the function, it'll do three retries and sometimes it'll make it through. If it doesn't, we, that data is not lost. Those messages are queued up and we can analyze and replay them at a later time. The cost benefits of SNS and SQS, you don't have to set up your own system. You don't have to maintain it. You just use it and pay for your usage of it. Fender Play is comprised of hundreds of hours of video instruction, and it's all shot on 4K, as Josh mentioned. So we have petabytes of raw data. We upload that into S3 via either a Snowball device or using Storage Gateway. When it's a video asset that is one that we has been edited down, other than the, just all the raw footage, that goes into a separate bucket that will then invoke a Lambda function to start an elastic transcoding job. Once that transcoding job is complete, the video will be placed in an output bucket that will trigger yet another Lambda function that updates a DynamoDB table so that we can attach that video content to lessons for users to retrieve. Additionally, we put a policy on that S3 upload bucket to move items into Amazon Glacier after a period of time. Glacier is, I believe it's five, like 20% the cost of S3. So we saw major cost savings, especially with a lot of just the raw footage moving that in. So to sum up, we've 
wholeheartedly embrace Lambda at Fender Digital. It's very cost effective when compared to EC2 instances, and using DynamoDB via RDS is advantageous as you're only paying for your throughput, you're not paying for an instance 24-7. SNS and SQS can give you a good event architecture that you're only paying for your use. And S3 Glacier can save you money for your long-term storage of large files. Scalability is very important to us. We're a very new company as a part of Fender, but we also are growing very rapidly. So Lambda will handle that load and request as it grows with just by spinning up more containers. And DynamoDB auto-scaling adjusts throughput to make sure we don't get throttled. And using DynamoDB in conjunction with Elasticsearch allows us to run our functions outside of a VPC. Security is very important to us. This is users' private data. So we use custom authorizers to gate access via, via API Gateway, and we can apply fine-grained access controls to Lambda functions. So if a given service, one function only needs to write to DynamoDB, it does not get permissions to write to Elasticsearch as well. And you can use direct invocation functions for private APIs that aren't publicly exposed, as well as the IAM permissions on Elasticsearch indexes. And one last note before I turn it back over to Mohit, we're hiring. If you're interested in working on systems like these or you already have, please come find me afterwards. Right. Uh, even if you're not seriously considering working at Fender, I recommend interviewing because you probably will get the factory tour, which is just amazing. It's really a lot of fun to see all the different types of guitars being made, and uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff happening, way more than I would have ever imagined <laughs> to get a get guitar from start, start to finish. So there's my, there's my plug. All right. A uh, couple, uh, couple other areas uh, in our uh, back end, a couple other layers in our back end architecture. So let's talk about global scale now. And I've broken out global scale uh, into two slides, one around static content and one around uh, dynamic content because the best practices are a little bit different. Uh, so you know, oftentimes, you know, first pass architecture can be, well, I'm gonna put my files in S3 and I'm gonna have my uh, mobile application, my web application read, read directly from, uh, uh, read, read directly from S3. Uh, that can be problematic for uh, a few reasons. Uh, the first one is, uh, as your app gets successful, people will be accessing it globally. Uh, you want your data to be available in a globally distributed way using a content delivery network. So the best practice here is to put Amazon CloudFront uh, in, front, in front of S3 and actually have applications access your data through CloudFront um, as, opposed through, uh, as opposed through S3. So that's the first thing that you're, um, that you're seeing, uh, seeing here. Static content, very cacheable. Uh, you can have pretty generous time to lives. Uh, you get good, good performance, low latency uh, by doing so. So that's, point, that's kind of point number one. Uh, point, point number two is to actually prevent access to your S3 bucket because uh, even, even, though you set up the, even though you set up the CDN, you're still potentially susceptible to a denial of service attack if somebody knows how to directly access your S3 bucket. 
Uh, so what you see, uh, so that's actually possible. Uh, if you go to the S3 console, there's this option here which says redirect all requests to another host name. So let's say I've configured my DNS, in this case Amazon Route 53, to have www.example.com do the proper thing, uh, but have uh, example.com do the wrong thing, like uh, go right straight to the S3 bucket, I can issue a redirect here. And that's what you see going on here. I'm saying if anybody ever does try to hit my S3 bucket directly, redirect them to www.example.com, and hence all the requests always go through CloudFront. Uh, they're, uh, they're cached on the edge, et cetera. Really powerful uh, and, and highly recommended um, a pattern for static content. Uh, one less known fact I think about S3 is S3 is not just a, a way to surf files. It actually implements media streaming. So you, you can upload your videos to S3, serve them through CloudFront, um, and together, via CloudFront, you get streaming media as well. Okay, dynamic content, as I mentioned, it's a little bit different. Uh, so here, let's say we want our dynamic content to be available multi-region. We want to be, be protected against uh, you know, a failure in a single region. So there's a bit more thought here because your data is not static, it's dynamic, it's, it's evolving. So here you do have to think more explicitly about provisioning two regions. And that's what I've done here. Uh, you'll see here that I have one region which has a, a stack of DynamoDB, the Lambda function uh, that's bridging uh, AppSync with DynamoDB and then AppSync provisioned in a single, in a single region. Uh, and I have the same stack uh, provisioned in a, in a second region. I've used DynamoDB's uh, cross region replication library to actually be able to replicate the data. So that's a good first step. So that enables me at least manually in the event of a, uh, in the event of a failure to, to somehow fail over. So that's the first step for sure. The next, the next kind of build, the next piece of the puzzle here is, is, is DNS. Uh, DNS provided by Route 53. So what's going on here is as a best practice, rather than having my app directly hit this regional, this regional AWS AppSync endpoint, it hits Route 53 DNS instead. And we've configured the DNS uh, here to, with a friendly name, so in this case, myendpoint.com. And it, by, you know, by default, it's, you know, by default it's, it's, it's routing all requests to this, this particular region. But by having this pattern, what I can do first in a manual way, then I'll show you how you can do it in an automatic way, is if something does go wrong with this region, I can update my DNS entry in here to instead point to this region. And without redeploying any of my applications, my apps are now using the failover, uh, failover region. So highly, highly recommended to, to kind of create this abstraction in DNS. So you, you, have, this, uh, you have this way of uh, handling uh, failures. Uh, but that said, there's a lot more powerful things you can do, uh, you can do too. So Route 53 is not just a dumb DNS, it's actually a smart, it's a smart DNS. And it can do routing uh, not just for failover scenarios. So some of the things that it can do, latency-based routing, so whichever one has lower latency, it's going to prefer. It can do geographical-based DNS, geoproximity. It can do round-robin. 
And rather than you having to manually go into Route 53 and update these DNS records, they're just, it's done for you. So then when some, let's say region one is Asia and region two is the US, when someone accesses your app from Asia, uh, Route 53 will, will uh, request to myendpoint.com, will route to this, this region. When someone in the US accesses your app, same request will route to the, uh, to the second region. So when you combine this with DNS failover, you have a nice way of building scalable, fault-tolerant applications, even when you have dynamic, even when you have dynamic data. And I haven't shown it here, but uh, RDS, if you're using relational database, also has a bunch of tools and techniques for doing replication uh, across availability zones, um, as well as in some cases across, across regions. I, I just chose Dynamo as an example in, in, in this case. So to summarize best practice when it comes to global scale, for static content, use CDN for low latency. Uh, as, of the t as, of me as of this morning, we have 107 points of presence uh, for, for CDN, so you're well covered around the world. Didn't talk so much about this, but you can connect CDN with WAF and Shield to add firewall and the distributed denial of service protection. So just one more reason to, to put CloudFront uh, in front. Uh, replicate your data cross-region, uh, especially if you're very sensitive, if you, you are concerned about cross-region issues or cross-region failures, or you want to optimize performance cross-region. And then, as much as possible, have your apps use an abstraction like Route 53 instead of hard-coding the uh, service endpoint directly. Okay. Uh, final, final topic, uh, monitoring and, and deployment. Uh, a couple of things here, a couple of two best practices here. One is log everything. Uh, how many folks here have now officially sort of adopted the log everything mantra? I know it was okay, some people. Yeah, increasingly we're just seeing our customers say, what the heck, just log everything. Like, uh, because you, you think you can anticipate what you need to know ahead of time, and it turns out the, the, the one thing you need to know is the one thing you didn't log. So increasingly we're just seeing customers log, log more. Uh, and the two, two services that we have that are very helpful for doing that are CloudWatch and CloudTrail. So CloudWatch is that, really that log everything kind of service. Uh, all the different AWS services automatically emit to CloudWatch, including AppSync, which is launching today. You can augment those CloudWatch logs with your own application, your own application logging. And this is really, really important, especially as event-driven architectures become really prevalent. You can't just do what you did in the old days, which is to track a call stack from start to finish and fully understand how your app is performing. There's a lot of stuff happening asynchronously. You know, the only way to really make sense of this is, is with, with good logging, and CloudWatch is our tool for that. CloudTrail, uh, some customers ask, like, what's the difference? Like, why should I use both? What's one versus the other? CloudTrail is a little bit more around API invocations. So whenever you have an API invocation, API gateway gets logged in, in, in CloudTrail. It lets, you, it lets you really follow that call, that call stack. Uh, they should be used together. They're very complementary. Uh, they, they serve slightly different, slightly different purposes. And uh, most important is to make things repeatable. So there's a lot of moving parts in what I showed today. Um, and there's a couple ways to make it easier. I'll show you that on the next slide. But the point is, once you've, you know, once you've decided on your architecture, make it repeatable and use something like CloudFormation to, to bake it into a file or a template that you can then check into source control 
and your developers can uh, replay on their own machines or in their own sandbox accounts. So there's a known quantity for your backend, uh, for your backend deployment. Um, the other benefit of this is auditing. Uh, a number of our customers, especially in the financial sector, actually want to see. So a developer and maybe their own account can create this backend, template it out, save it using CloudFormation. But before it actually goes to production, there's an auditing process. So like, you can't actually deploy backend resources to production without, without what, you're going to be what you're going to deploy being audited. And CloudFormation is a very nice way to do that because it describes each and every resource that's ultimately going to make it, um, uh, make it to your backend. So highly advisable as you go along to make your deployments automatable. It helps developers with sandbox environments. It helps multi-stage rollout to production. Uh, it helps with auditing. All right, so then you might be wondering, how do I get started? Lots and lots of concepts, powerful concepts, but a lot of concepts. You know, how the heck do I get started? So a, you know, an advisable place to get started is something called AWS Mobile Hub. Have folks used Mobile Hub? Okay, small number. So AWS has 100 plus services, uh, and it can be daunting to a mobile developer. Like, how do I choose among those 100 services? So a lot of those best practices that we talked about today are just baked into Mobile Hub. So it, it's, a, it's a service in the console. You can pick user identity. You can pick data. Uh, you can pick bots even. And we wire these things up per some of the best practice that you learned about today. So we provision the services. We configure access control, IAM roles and policies. We generate configuration that you can embed into your application. And we even generate starter applications. So this is a good place to get started with wrapping your head around how to configure and use AWS for a mobile backend. You can, the nice thing is you can then export what you created. So you can just you can point and click in the console, hit export, you get an artifact. That artifact can get checked into source control. Someone else on your dev team, different account, can replay, can replay what you just did in Mobile Hub and, and have, a, have a, a backend with the same characteristics. It doesn't do everything in this deck. Um, so one of our design principles has been not to hide what's happening. Um, you know, we, we thought about Mobile Hub being a veneer and you know, us managing all the resources. We don't do that. These still get provisioned in your account. So you're always free and encouraged to go to the service consoles and do additional configuration. Uh, you know, for example, we don't set up that DynamoDB caching. We don't set up DynamoDB multi-region replication. You can still use Mobile Hub to get started and then pivot to the DynamoDB console to do the to do the balance. Uh, other thing, uh, if you want to dabble in AppSync, which we launched today, it it's, was launched as a preview. Uh, that means it's behind the whitelist, but you can go to, you can go to the, um, the product page, which I believe will be up at 5 o'clock. I was hoping it would be up earlier, but it'll be up at 5 o'clock. And once you're there, you can, um, once you're there, you can absolutely sign up for the whitelist, and we'll be, we'll be clearing people off the whitelist uh, on a regular, regular basis. And we, on AppSync in particular, we look forward to your feedback. It is a preview. Um, and the reason we do previews before GA is to get, to get feedback from real customers and reflect that feedback in the product before we go GA. So with that, I am done. I appreciate, uh, appreciate you guys being here for the full hour. Uh, finishing up a few minutes early so, that I can, so we can take questions before the next, next speaker comes in. Uh, but thank you again. You've been a wonderful audience. Really appreciate it. Thank you.